You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Today, I hope we will see what God wants us to see in the seventh chapter of Luke's gospel. I want to offer you a view of what Luke appears to be doing, a view shown to me by a former professor, Dr. John Leonard. And so with that in mind, let's take a look. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 7, beginning verse 1. When Jesus had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, in other words, after he got through with this Sermon on the Plain or Sermon on the Mount language, he entered into a place called Capernaum. Capernaum church ended up being sort of the central place of his ministry. Five of his disciples are from here. So he enters a place called Capernaum. A centurion's slave who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his slave. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he, had not, when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be cured. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Centurions formed the backbone of the Roman army. The word centurio itself denotes a commander of at least 100 troops, though the number of troops under his command would have varied depending on the time period and rank. But this Roman centurion was a well-to-do, literate man of power and privilege. And by the accounts of various 1st and 2nd century Roman statesmen, we learn learn that the average centurion received 18 times the pay of the standard soldier. In the text, we see the Jewish elders coming to Jesus with a request. And as we listen in on the conversation, we hear that a Roman centurion's servant or slave is sick, and he wants Jesus to heal him. This particular centurion is highly respected by the local Jews in Capernaum. He's a good person. He's worthy for you to grant this, the Jewish elders say to Jesus, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And Jesus doesn't ask the disciples what he ought to do. And I think this is interesting, especially when you consider that Jesus just stepped off the mount where he preached this epic yet scandalous sermon. Morally speaking, we might think Jesus should heal this man's servant. Sure, he can afford another slave, but he's been so kind to the Jews, unusually kind. He's a good person. And these are the kinds of people Jesus should help, good people. Politically speaking, we might think about all the problems that often arise between Jews and Romans, the deep racial hatred that exists among them, and how nice it would be to have a man of power, a friend of the throne, so to speak, on our side. 
Jesus should most definitely help this man. Financially speaking, we think about this man's wealth. He has deep pockets. He built a place of worship for these guys. Maybe he'll do the same for us when we're done with this ministry tour you have us on, Jesus. And not only that, we help a lot of poor and hurting people. And this is the kind of guy you want in your contacts list. You know, the kind of guy you want to invite to your fundraising banquet. Without hesitation, Jesus follows the Jewish leaders to the centurion's home, but not for moral, political, or financial reasons. Jesus rarely thinks like us. In his unreserved decision to go to the Roman centurion's home, it seems as though Jesus wants to teach his disciples how to apply the sermon he just preached. See, to the local Jews in Capernaum, this Roman centurion may have been regarded a good person, almost a Roman celebrity, but to other Jews, like some of Jesus' other disciples, a Roman centurion represented all that was wrong in their world. In his power and privilege, he embodies the power and privilege of the Roman Empire. And even though five of Jesus' disciples, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and Matthew, are all from Capernaum, I'm not sure the rest of the disciples would have been too fond of helping a Roman centurion. And I especially think of Simon, who before he became a follower of Jesus, was a member of a radical political party called the Zealots, tax-hating, Roman-hating vigilantes. Pretty sure he wouldn't have been too fond at helping a Roman centurion. But this is what it looks like to love the ones we despise. Perhaps that's the message Jesus wants to show his disciples. The gospel of God's kingdom is bigger and more important than all other issues, even power and privilege. If Jesus' disciples would have written this man off simply because he was a Roman centurion from the wrong socioeconomic class on the wrong side of the racial line, they would have missed this powerful and privileged man's humble heart. Jesus went with them and he was not far from the house, and the centurion sent the friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. I think Luke has an agenda. And he doesn't let us stay too long in the fine home of this Roman centurion soldier before he leads us to another place. Chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterward, which I think is important, soon afterward, he was on his way to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd were traveling with him. Just as he neared the gate of the town, a dead man was being carried out. He was his mother's only son, and she was a widow. A large crowd from the city was also with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, Don't cry. And then he came up and touched the open coffin, and the pallbearer stopped. And he said, young man, I tell you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And then fear came over everyone, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has risen among us, and God has visited his people. This report about him went throughout all Judea and all the vicinity. Now, In the Greco-Roman culture, women already had little rights. 
In a male-dominated society, a woman relied heavily upon a man, whether husband or son, for their livelihood. Without a husband, and now without a son, a woman was left with three basic options. Prostitution, self-imposed slavery, and begging. A widow invariably was poor and powerless. Luke immediately takes us from the home of this powerful and privileged centurion to the funeral service for the son of a powerless and poor widow. I think Luke wants us to see a connection, church. Don't miss this. I think he wants us to see a connection right in the story. And I think the connection is found in the contrast. See, they are on opposite ends of the human spectrum. The centurion is everything the widow is not. He is a Roman, she's a Jew. He's a male, she is a female. He has people, she has no people. He has power, she is powerless. He has privilege, she has poverty. The centurion is asking help from Jesus for a slave he can afford to live without, and she has just lost everything. These two people mark the edges of society creating what we could think of as the side-to-side margins of the human spectrum, the powerful and the privileged, the powerless and the poor. These are the margins. Every other human being falls somewhere in between, but these are the margins. It doesn't get farther than this. Everybody finds their place somewhere in between or to that edge. And in Luke's story, he wants us to see Jesus there. Now Luke introduces us to two different kinds of people. John the baptizer, Luke chapter 7, beginning verse 18. Then John's disciples told him about all these things. So John summoned two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord asking, Are you the one who is to come or should we look for someone else? And so when the men reached him, they said, John the baptizer sent us to ask you a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for somebody else? At that time, Jesus healed many people of diseases, plagues, and evil spirits, and he granted sight to many blind people. He replied to them, go and report to John the things you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight, the lame walked. Those with skin diseases are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the gospel, good news. And anyone who is not offended because of me is blessed. (laughs) I love Jesus' randomness. Go tell them all the good things I've done, and if I've made anybody angry, that's on them. Anyone who's not been angry by me is blessed. (laughs) After John's messengers left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. Jesus turns around and he He's going to tell him a little bit about John the baptizer. And he says, where did you go into the wilderness to see? What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swaying in the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft robes like the centurion? Look, those who are splendidly dressed and live in luxury are in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and far more than a prophet. This is the one it is written about. He's talking about John the baptizer. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, no one is greater than my boy John. 
But the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. John is the cousin of Jesus, if you didn't know. John is a wily prophet and preacher of righteousness. His wardrobe consisted of camel hair and his diet of locusts and honey. He's the original granola guy. Right, John is the man the Hebrew prophet said would prepare the way of the Lord. He was a relentless, truth-telling, politically incorrect, seemingly irreligious radical whose messages of repentance preached to the comfortably religious placed him in the jail of the Jewish governor. Now John is wondering, as he sits in his jail cell, if Jesus is who he believes he is. Even though John baptized Jesus and heard the voice of God speak from the heavens and saw a dove descend on on Jesus' head, which was the Holy Spirit, John finds himself in a place of doubt and uncertainty. And so he sends his disciples to Jesus just to make sure one more time, just to make sure that his upcoming death sentence is worth it. And what I love about Jesus is he doesn't judge John. Jesus doesn't leverage his doubt as a teaching moment about why we should and can have a firm, resolute faith. No. Instead, he graciously responds in verse 22. Go and report to John the things you've seen and heard. And then in verse 28, I tell you, Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Jesus calls this crazy, radical, the greatest man to have ever lived, placing him at the top of humanity, spiritually speaking. And then says all those can be there too, who believe. And he turns around and says that even those who are the least in the kingdom can be even higher than that. At the top of the vertical margins of religion, closest to God and farthest from God, John appears as the righteous saint in Jesus' language. Right at the top. And then there's the other woman. The woman we meet in Luke 7, verse 36. Then one of the Pharisees, who was a religious leader, invited Jesus to eat with him, and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of fragrant oil and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with with her tears. She wiped his feet with the hair of her head, kissing them and anointing them with the fragrant oil. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, sidebar, I say this a lot. Look, if Jesus is ever in the room with you, don't think things in your head. Just don't do that. Jesus replies to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. All right, if Jesus ever says that, say, can you hold that thought? Simon says, teacher, 
Say it. Verse 41, a creditor has two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, Simon, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. You've judged correctly, Jesus told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. but She hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she hasn't. She has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who's forgiven little loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is the man who forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith is saved. You go in peace. This prostitute finds her way into the home of a religious leader named Simon. Simon's a Pharisee. He knows the Bible better than many. And Simon thought he ranked up there with John, but learned in Jesus' little story that he was lower on the spiritual totem pole than he thought, even lower than the prostitute. See, this woman Simon rejects as utterly disgusting and unworthy of Jesus falls before Jesus a sinner, painfully aware of her rejection by others and rejection by religion. See, I think Luke wants us to see another connection between these two people. See, like the centurion and the widow, John the baptizer and the prostitute are opposites on the human spectrum, spiritually speaking. John is everything the prostitute is not. He has disciples. She has haters. He is called a prophet. She is called pathetic. He has faith despite doubt. She has failure despite determination. He's considered by some as righteous. She's considered by all as rejected. And these two people mark the edges of spirituality and religion, creating what we can think of as a top to bottom of the religious spectrum, the righteous saint close to God and the rejected sinner farthest from God. And when we read Luke 7 on the heels of Luke 6, we see what the Sermon on the Mount looks like in Jesus' mind, I think. See, because everybody else in the world falls here and somewhere here. These are the margins. Every person in this building falls somewhere in here. Some of us who think we're the righteous saints and some of us who think we're the rejected sinners. Some of us who live lives of privilege and power and some of us who live lives of poverty and powerlessness. When we see Jesus reaching the centurion and the widow, we see the kingdom of God breaking in. We see God's grace reach from one side of the social margin to the other. From the powerful to the powerless, from the privileged to the poor, from the ethnic majority to the ethnic minority, from the ones surrounded by loved ones to the ones stumbling in loneliness. When we see Jesus speaking of John the Baptist 
and then to Simon about the prostitute, we see the kingdom of God breaking in. We see God's grace reach from one side of the religious spectrum to the other. We see Jesus reaching from the righteous to the rejected, from the saint to the sinner, from the one with faith despite doubt to the ones with failure despite determination. See, Simon the Pharisee made the mistake that many of us do, not only toward others, but even toward ourselves. He decided, Simon, who was going to be worthy of grace. And the truth of Christ, the truth of Jesus, is the only one worthy of grace, is the one who realizes he or she can never be worthy. There's no other answer than that. See, because God's grace is exactly that. It's grace. It's God doing for us on our behalf what we could never deserve for ourselves. We live in this world of fortune cookie theology where we read and say and preach that God helps those who help themselves. That couldn't be farther from the Bible. God helps those who can't help themselves. And I might even argue because of grace, God can only help those who realize they can't help themselves. And you see that in the stories. We see this in the centurion's humility and his need for the healing power that could come only through Jesus. We see this in the widow's grief and her need for a resurrecting hope that could come only through Jesus. We see this in John's doubt and his need for reassurance and peace that comes only through Jesus. We see this in the prostitute's desperation and her need for salvation and restoration that could come only through Jesus. If the grace of God, church, and hear me, if you don't hear anything else, if the grace of God can touch a Roman centurion, a Jewish widow, a righteous saint, and a rejected sinner, His grace can touch your life as well. The good news of the gospel is that God's grace reaches beyond all boundaries because God's love is boundaryless. No one is ever outside the reach of God's grace. We're the ones who push people away. We're the ones who see ourselves as though we're somehow too far. We're the ones who draw lines in the sand and create boundaries and say there's no way. There's no way. That person can find life here. Forgiveness here a new way of doing things here. He's done too many things. Once a reprobate, always a reprobate, is what we would say. And Jesus would say, no. No. You cannot be too rich or poor, too powerful or powerless, too righteous or rejected, too saintly or sinful. You can't. In the eyes of King Jesus, you're never unforgivable. You're never outside the reach of God's grace. You and I are always in need of grace. Always. And the moment we forget that, is the moment we lose ourselves. 
You are not too proud or humble, too educated or uneducated, too addicted or angry, too successful or unsuccessful, too certain or doubtful, too imperfect or impossible. The cross of Jesus Christ and the truth of his resurrection proclaims that whatever is impossible with humanity is possible with God. And in the eyes of King Jesus, you're never outside the reach of God's grace. You and I are always in need of God's grace. And trust in Jesus is the only way. See, with messages like this, you may be left wondering with what do I do about it? Because we are a people who have to put our hands and feet to work with some practical application. So I want to give you that. Here's what you do with the message today. I want you to see differently. When you look yourself in the mirror later on today or tomorrow morning or tonight, and you go to brush your teeth or you brush your hair, I want you to see, in light of what Jesus has said, a person who is deeply beloved by God. You are a kid of God. When you go to look in the mirror later on today and you notice that you're a little on the heavier side than you would like to be, or maybe your hair is going back a little too far, if you know what I mean, and you start feeling as though you're just not what you think you should be, I want you to see that the grace of God reaches you. You are a child of the King. And you may be wondering what else you need to do to really experience this grace. If that's not enough, then I think what you do is do what the disciples had to do with Jesus. Follow him to the margins. That's where they saw grace. They saw grace when Jesus touched the Roman centurion. They saw grace when Jesus comforted and gave hope to a widow. They saw grace when they saw Jesus give word of John the baptizer. They saw grace when they saw Jesus receive the prostitute, in the company of a religious leader. I met this guy who had been homeless only for about three months of his life. He had a medical condition that resulted in him having to get treatment, and the treatment resulted in him losing his job. And after months and months of treatment, and losing his job, he goes to his apartment and he finds out from the doctor, he's been healed. And so he goes to his apartment and he's excited and he can't wait to get back to work, this man. And he puts his key in the door and the key doesn't fit. He's been evicted. So he's homeless. First time in his life. And I met this guy and I, I found out a story and I, I just wanted him to not move from a place of responsibility to a place of survivability, of not thinking about tomorrow because all you're doing is thinking about how you're going to make it through the night. And I just wanted to, I wanted to maybe see if I could just catch him a little early and, and kind of lift him up as a friend and get to know him if he'd let me and give me permission and just kind of be there with this guy. And, 
And I started meeting with this guy, and we started walking together just as people, as human beings, as friends, and, and no agenda, just, just there. Because uh, I just don't believe that. I think this, this story tells us, Jesus tells us no one deserves to be abandoned, and no one deserves to stand alone. And so we, we just started walking, and, and he was going to job after interview, job interview, job interview. And every job interview, he'd be wearing his clothes, and he'd take his gear in, and he'd put his gear down, and he'd interview, and nobody wants to hire a guy who's carrying his gear everywhere he goes. And so despite his qualifications, after about 20-something jobs, he didn't get hired. So I found out, I thought, you know, I felt like the Lord said, hey, do something about that. Well, we, we can do something about that. So I bought him a white shirt and black pants. And I said, hey, why don't you keep your stuff in my office on your next interview? Well, he had an interview. He said, can I get those white, white shirt and black pants? I said, absolutely. And you can bring your stuff and leave it in my office. He went on the interview and got the job. And we're sitting in my office. And we're talking about what next. I don't know, but we can figure it out. The Lord will lead us. He's done this much. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I was so angry at God. I was so angry at God. I'm dying, the doctors tell me. Then he heals me just to put me on the street. He said, and I'm not sure I was right to be angry. I said, well, here's the thing, man. You can be angry with God. It's not going to scare him off his throne. But you won't have to be angry alone. He said, because I've grown to care for you. And immediately he began to cry. And I mean weep. I didn't know what I'd said. I said, what's wrong? He said, you don't know. I haven't heard anybody tell me. And as long as I can remember that somebody cares for me. He said, I just don't know what to make of that right now. He said, we'll figure that out too. I saw grace that day. That's all I'm saying. I saw grace. And God's grace and seeing it in somebody else's life is changing me. God's grace can change us all. So I ask you, what Jesus asked Simon the Pharisee, do you see? Do you see? I pray you will see what God sees when he sees 